Hi, I'm Shelly. And I'm Nicole. And you're listening to the Baby Pro Podcast, where we talk about everything and anything related to pregnancy through the first year of your child's life. Every episode, we will discuss and interview experts on all the questions expectant and new parents want to know, such as creating the perfect birth plan, infant sleep, and tips and tricks for parenting a newborn. Welcome to the show. everyone. It's Shelly here, and I am back for another episode of the Baby Pro Podcast. Unfortunately, Nicole's not able to join us this week, so it'll just be me, except for our guest speaker. This week, we are interviewing Michelle Onaka from Intentional Money Life, and she is going to talk to us all about preparing financially for a baby and then financial strategies for when you're raising kids. So something that I don't think that we get enough education on, certainly not in school. No one's taught sound financial advice in school anymore. But as you're preparing to expand your family, you're wanting to make sure that you have all the adult responsible things done, like your will and life insurance and all that. So that's what she's going to talk to us about. Lots of great information in this episode. So stay tuned for that interview. First, though, let's go into my favorite of the week. This week, my favorite of the week is the book Tender is the Flesh. This book is both fascinating and horrifying at the same time. Kind of like one of those books that's such a bad car crash and you can't look away. I would say if you enjoyed reading books like The Handmaid's Tale, like really hard, brutal stories, then you might like this book. It takes place in a time when a virus infects all the animals on the planet making them essentially poisonous to humans. So if you eat their meat, you get sick. If you get scratched or bitten. So meat is outlawed, having pets is outlawed, zoos are shut down, all that stuff. And after a while, the society decides to legalize cannibalism and they start raising humans to slaughter and feed to other humans. So it's quite descriptive with the whole slaughtering and raising process. Um, So again, not for the faint of heart. And the ending was very surprising to me. I thought it was a little bit of a twist. It did not end how I thought it was going to end. So I would say it's a hard book to read, but a good book to read. And that is my favorite of the week. And now we're going to jump into our question of the week. So this week's question was submitted through Instagram. And this parent writes that her three and a half month old keeps popping on and off the breast and is very unsettled and fussy during feedings. This is a great question. We do see this a lot around this age between three and a half, four or five months, six months. Some of it might be that this is the age of where babies get very, very distracted. And so if they're popping on and off the breast to turn and look around the room, Or sometimes like with my son, he would not even pop off. He would just hold the latch and then turn and look around the room and take my nipple with him, which was, of course, not the most pleasant thing. We call that nip lash in lactation land. So it could be that your baby is pretty distracted. If that's the case, then try nursing in a nice, quiet, dark room. Sometimes babies pop on and off the breast and get unsettled because they might have reflux. Or sometimes if your baby has a food allergy to something in your diet and they start to associate breastfeeding with then having tummy troubles, they will pop off and on the breast and become unsettled. 
Some babies will do this behavior if the flow is too fast and some will do it if the flow is too slow. If you can't quite pinpoint which one of these it might be that I definitely would recommend seeing an IBCLC to help you kind of examine that and see what exactly is going on with your baby specifically. And that is a great question. And now we're going to be talking with Michelle Onaka. I'm so excited to announce this week's guest, Michelle Anaka from Intentional Money Life. Michelle provides financial education to families in a way that makes it easy to apply to themselves and creates a life that they love. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. So I'm Michelle. I live in Oregon. I have two young children. One is almost two. So she's about the same age as the pandemic is. And the other is four and a half or almost four and a half. And I work half time at the local university as a TRIO SSS academic counselor. TRIO SSS is an amazing program. Look it up if you haven't heard of it. And then I also have uh, another business, Intentional Money Life, to help people, as you said, build financial education, apply it to yourself and intentionally create a life that you love. So how did you get into like the financial business? It was a journey. My whole career, I think, has been a journey. But I would say mostly it was through my job. So with TRIO SSS, we are working with Pell-eligible college students and first-generation college students and students with disabilities. So this is a federally funded program. And one of the goals of the program is to build financial education. And so in my job, I've always been providing students financial education. Um, kind of, you know, as part of our one-on-one meetings and kind of trying to systemize it into the program. And so, okay, when students come into the program, what kind of financial education can we give them then? And when else can we give them financial education? And so it was always something that I've always really taken an interest to. So I kind of became the person within the program who often did the financial literacy type things. And then as many of you might find Once I had kids, I started to really want to level up my own finances. I wanted to learn more. I wanted to figure things out. I wanted to figure out what I wanted retirement to look like and how to get there. It, I feel like having kids takes you to a place where you want to be better and do better. And so as I started to level up my own finances, I also decided to offer a course for our students. And so I offered last spring, a course, um, planning your financial future to our TRIO SSS students and It was amazing and impactful. And even though I probably wasn't a very good teacher that first time around, (laughs) I felt like the students got a lot from it. And then kind of that experience led me to decide to open a business because I figured there are a lot of people out there giving advice about financial stuff. And at the same time, sometimes it can be hard to find the information that you need, or it's not in a way that's easy to understand, or you don't know if you can trust those people, or they don't talk about how you can actually apply it to yourself and what that means for you. And so I decided to start a business. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's awesome. And I completely agree that there's so much information out there can be really, really overwhelming. And so much of it is like contradicting too. Yeah. Yeah. There's, you know, there's so many people that say so many things. So I actually decided to get on TikTok really just to like battle with the other people, like to give someone a chance to find what I consider <laughs> to be actual good information, you know, because mm-hmm. I, I hear students that are saying like, oh yeah, I started this account because I heard it on TikTok and I'm like, that's great, but there's so much information that you're missing. And Mm -hmm. so I figure, Hey, I might as well be on all the places too. And maybe some of these people will find the information and they'll get some good, you know, solid information. And then they can kind of do a better job with their own finances than maybe I was able to do, or that really most of us are able to do because as you said, it's not really taught to most people. 
Right. And it should really be taught in like school, right? Like before you even graduate high school, like kids don't know how to balance a checkbook. They don't know how to save. They don't know how to budget. That's never discussed, at least when I was in school. And even when I was in college, I still didn't know. And you go to college campuses and at least this is, you know, when I went to college, I don't know if this is the same, but they always had the credit card companies standing on the curves outside the campus. And they'd say, Hey, I'll give you a free t-shirt if you just fill out this. (laughs) And I totally did. I totally, I'm like, I want a free t-shirt and then filled it out and got a credit card in the mail. You know, Um, I actually think I did the same thing, but I never got the credit card in the mail. So then I'm like, I don't know what happened with that, but I'm pretty sure I did the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. There was like a line of students lined up ready to do it. And it's like the games that they play to get us into debt and to make money off of us. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I work at a university, so I can tell you that at my university, there is one course um, that any undergraduate student could take for financial literacy. And it's kind of geared towards first year students, more or less. It's not integrated into the curriculum. The College of Business integrates it really well. They have several financial literacy classes. None of the other majors that I'm aware of have a single financial literacy course. We have a back core requirements. We have specific courses that students have to take it's not part of them. (laughs) So that was part of it too. Like there's no one else offering this kind of information. And so the class that I wanted to teach was geared towards, Hey, you're getting ready to graduate. What do you need to think about now? And Mm -hmm. there weren't any classes like that. And unfortunately I cannot offer the course to other students at my university because I'm a trio professional and I'm being paid by a trio grant. Only trio students can take the course. So it's really unfortunate because yeah, there are other people that could totally benefit from it, but I can't teach it to them either. (laughs) Which is probably why you branched out into your own business to make it more accessible for everybody. Right. Right. And I find, you know, I can create a three minute Instagram video that I can share with whoever I want to share it with, or, you know, Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 It's nice to be able to get out there and kind of provide information that I wouldn't have without starting a business first. I wouldn't have been like, yeah, let me just go on Instagram and start sharing financial education. Like I just wouldn't have done that. That's just not who I am. And so, Mm -hmm. but making the business and kind of starting to think about like, what do I need to do next? I was like, oh, I guess I should figure out how social media works. (laughs) (laughs) It's still a process. I'm still learning, but it's cool to be on those places and just know that there's at least someone that might run across the information and get, get good information from it. I think social media is a good platform because the people who probably aren't as financially literate as should be might not know that they're not. Does that make sense? Am I making sense? Like you don't know what you don't know, (laughs) but if you're scrolling through and we see, you know, your face pop up and you're talking about compound interest or all this stuff, I didn't even learn this stuff until like, I think it was my late twenties was when I first wrote my first budget. Yeah. Um, And it was only because someone else had encouraged me to do it. It wasn't because I was thinking to myself, Hey, I should actually have a budget. (laughs) It was like, (laughs) no, someone else had to say, um, have you thought about making a budget? So even as adults, there's a lot of us that are still completely clueless on how to save and invest in all that. And that's why I'm saying, especially, I think when you transition to becoming a parent, not that we all figure it out, not that we all figure out at that point, like, oh, I should figure something out financially, but that that's a time when we're more primed for it, when we're more thinking about it, when we're more aware of what our financial situation is and maybe why it matters. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's a good time to really think about it, I think. 100%. When a couple does decide that they want to try to have a baby and start a family, what are some things that they should be considering at that point in terms of finances? I think one of the first things that I would want to do is make sure you have a solid emergency fund. 
because the emergency fund, I think, is really kind of the backbone of all financial planning. If you don't have an emergency fund, you any other hard work that you do could kind of end up worth a lot less in the end, I would say. And so the very first step would be make sure you have a solid emergency fund, especially if you find that you do not have great benefits in terms of leave benefits or health insurance benefits. So I would also say starting to understand what kind of benefits you do have access to. If you are early on in this phase, um, consider getting short-term disability insurance um, because you can get five-ish weeks usually of coverage at you know 60% of how much you would normally make, um, which can be helpful. Of course, if you have really good leave, then that might not be necessary, but... So checking on your leave policies, checking both parents, um, you know, it's becoming more common that sometimes both parents can take leave. And so understanding your leave, understanding your health insurance and what the costs will be and where you might be able to have a baby getting that emergency fund solid and maybe saving a little bit of extra cash, I would say, just because, you know, your costs are going to go up. And so the more you have just a little bit of barrier that will help a lot. Mm -hmm. I would also say at this point, and it doesn't have to be at this point, it could be later. I would also consider going ahead and getting life insurance. So if you do not have solid life insurance on yourself and your partner, if you have one, I would go ahead and add that now. Once you kind of know, hey, we're going to be needing life insurance soon, it's a good time to go ahead and get it because Mm -hmm. the longer you wait, the more chances that something could happen that could make it more expensive for you to get. And so I would definitely yeah. just go ahead and get the, get the life insurance. Once you realize, you know, if you know, you're trying to have a baby, well, you're probably going to need life insurance for at least a little while. Um, and I do encourage term life insurance for life insurance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I like that your point about checking in on your insurance benefits, because you want to know how much, you know, if you get pregnant and have a baby, how much is that birth going to cost you? Because for some insurances, they cover everything. And then for other insurances, they don't. Yeah. Um, and I have known people who would been hit with like unexpected hospital bills. Yes. And something to also know is that make sure you're asking um, if you're getting a quote or if you're getting an idea of what it might be, make sure you're asking, does that include the baby care for the first few months? Because, you know, a baby is another person. And so do you need to hit another deductible or kind of how does that how is that going to work? How are you going to be charged mm-hmm. for the actual baby portion of that? Much less all of the appointments that you're going to have, because you're probably going to have appointment at two days at least and eight weeks. And I mean, every two months, at least, mm-hmm. if not anything before that, probably at six weeks too. And there's, there's all sorts of appointments once you have the baby. So just making sure you understand what that's going to look like can be helpful. Mm-hmm. Right. And just thinking, I mean, we, we all hope for an unpredictable birth <laughs> an uneventful birth. But, you know, sometimes babies are in the NICU and sometimes you want to take an extended leave so that you can be there for your baby if they're sick or not able to be discharged home yet. And if you have all that emergency fund in that buffer zone, as you yeah. recommended, you know, you're more likely to be able to do that. Yeah. And I mean, something that isn't everyone's experience, but something that ended up being my experience was I expected I was going to work full time forever. And then I faced going back to work and I was like, what? I don't want to do this. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I ended up dropping down to half time. And uh, that's not something I had considered ahead of time. That's not something that I had ever made part of my plans. And so we were lucky that, you know, we were in a financial situation to do that. So even just thinking about, you know, what do you want your life to look like with a child? Um, my partner works 50 hour weeks. He is at work by 7am and he doesn't get home until 5pm. So that means every morning is on me. 
So I was going to be the person dropping kids off at daycare, going to work, picking kids up from daycare, coming home and trying to kind of rush through everything to get dinner on the table while he's showering because he's a welder and needs to shower as soon as he gets home. And so there are things like that to just start to just starting to think about and starting to talk about with a partner as to what's that life going to look like and how will you have some sort of work-life balance and how will you be able to afford, you know, yes, costs will go up somewhat once you have a kid, especially if you need childcare, but just Mm -hmm. really thinking about those things can be helpful. Like I said, I was just lucky that it was okay for me. Right. Right. And especially with the cost of daycare, when I started having babies, I worked at CVS as a supervisor. And when we looked into the cost of childcare, it was like, I would be paying to go to work. And that was just with, with one child. So I was lucky enough where we could configure it where I could switch to evening shifts. So when my husband got home, I would leave and then, you know, I would be home by the morning. So we didn't, and we didn't end up having to use daycare, but you know, it's not like everybody can just switch to evening shifts. And it didn't mean that I didn't really see my husband at the time for a while because we were always working opposite shifts, but we made it work. But that was something that I was not, for some reason, I had not thought ahead to the daycare, to the daycare part. So. And that's a good thing to mention is that in my community, there's so little daycare that I actually got on to wait lists well before I was planning to have a baby. Like I'm talking, I started getting on wait lists. I'm thinking in 2015 or 2016, and my first baby wasn't born until the end of 2017. And initially they didn't think they were going to have a space for me. Wow. I've heard (laughs) of that being the case in like New York city. But I didn't and imagine I, it. And I live in a small college town. Oh, yeah. wow. It's yeah. it's insane. Yeah. It's insane. It really, it really is. <laughs> and then you mentioned like talking with your partner about what possible scenarios can come up when you have a baby. But how do you as a couple make sure that you're on the same page financially and both before and after having the baby? Yeah, I think that that's a really big one. And I don't know that I have necessarily a specific answer for that besides really talking to each other about money, understanding your situation, coming up with a plan. I do think often couples decide to keep their finances separate. And I think that everyone gets to do what they want. But remember that, especially if someone has to take a step back from work, how are you going to feel if you're not bringing in as much income and then you guys are actually keeping your money separate? To me, at least it's kind of pooling things together. And how do we make decisions together? How do we work towards shared goals together? And like I said, I know that that doesn't work for everyone. And I do think that everyone should have access to some funds of their own in case there's any reason why they have to get out of some sort of situation. But I do think really getting on the same page and thinking about kind of shared spending and shared goals and what do we need to do together? I think that that's really important. And so starting to have an idea of what's your relationship with money? Where does it come from? How do you think about money? How do you feel about money? What's valuable to you? What matters to you a lot? I mean, really starting to do a little bit of understanding of your own to really see what do I care about? What what actually matters to me? What do I want to see happen? And then kind of bringing those and, you know, ideally having your partner do the same and then bringing those together and just kind of talking about it to see, you know, where are we aligned and where are we maybe different? You know, my partner really, really wants to work on his project car. And that's something that he really wants to do. And unfortunately, right now, that's just, it's not in the budget. It's something that eventually will be, you know, it's important to him. And I know that, but right now, all of our money is kind of going towards those shared goals. Um, And eventually we will be able to, you know, have separate money that we can work on other things for, but. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So really open communication is, I think, a big part of it. Mm-hmm. What do you want to see happen? What can you each give up if you need to give things up? Or where can you each add if you need to add? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, really just working to get on the same page, I think. And I think one of the communication, of course, I think you're 100% right is correct. And I think one of the mistakes that I made when my marriage is I did all the budgeting and stuff by myself because I was the better quote unquote, the better one at it. Right. (laughs) And it led to a situation where sometimes my husband, not that he didn't understand, but he didn't really know how much things were costing. He only knew how much I made. So, so it would be like, whoa, slow down there, buddy. But once you have, once we had that discussion of like, no, this is how much I'm paying on all these bills and listing it out for him. And this is, know, our savings goal, it really helped us to do the budget together. Even if I was going to be the one like updating it all the time, it really helped to sit down and create the budget together and create those savings goals together. And then reminding each other, you know, this is what we're working towards. Yes, absolutely. I mean, so often you'll see, yeah, one person taking it over because they're either better or just because they want to. And sometimes that's terrible, right? Sometimes that person's actually a terrible spender. And that was a really bad idea in the first place. (laughs) Yeah, but sometimes it just means, you know, someone doesn't have as good of a credit score because they're not on all of the credit cards or, you know, people just don't know. And so they're, if you don't know what you're working towards, you don't really know what you're doing. Right. I think, mm-hmm. I mean, with my college course and with my, the course that I'm doing an online course with anything that I do, kind of the very first step is like, who are you? What do you care about? What do you want to work towards? Because if you don't know those things, I mean, I think a lot of people start with budgeting and I think budgeting is fine and all, but for me, I'm not excited about a budget until it's getting me to where I want to go. If you can tell me that, yeah, if you can stick within this budget and put this much money towards this thing, you'll be able to do this in the end. Like that's a very different conversation than just like, well, you should try not to spend money or something, which is what Mm -hmm. I think sometimes budgeting feels like without kind of that pre, like, where are we going to? What's the point of this budget? (laughs) Right. You don't want to feel controlled by your budget. You just yeah. you want to feel like it's a tool to help you reach your goal. Like you said, right? it's, it's you deciding like, this is how I want to do it. It's you being intentional about what you want to do and why, um, right. but with, without thinking about it that way, you might just think that like, oh, this budget's controlling me, but it's like, no, you control the budget. You get to decide, mm-hmm. oh, we thought that this was doable, but this one thing is just not doable. And so you have to find a way to change it and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Right. And then going back to the values, it's nice to have goals set up for your values. Like you said, like my husband, I value experiences over like presents and gifts. And so we've made the shift where, you know, for Christmas, my kids didn't really get any presents because we're going to be taking them somewhere later this year. And, you know, we prefer to save up. There's a lot of things that we could buy um, that we choose not to buy so that we do have the money to go on a vacation, which, you know, we're privileged that we can. But it, it does mean a s- small amount of sacrifice for us. Like there are certain things that we want to buy and we don't in order to go on those vacations and take those trips. Yeah, I think really it helps. I mean, really coming back to your values helps you to clarify like, oh, wow, community and family and experiences. Like those are all things that really matter to me. Am I spending my money in a way that actually supports that? You know, mm-hmm. am I using my money to fulfill those values or to create more opportunities for me to have valuable experiences. And if you're not, then it really helps you to know like, oh, no wonder I'm maybe not enjoying my life as much or no wonder Mm -hmm. I feel like everything is just like the same thing over and over again. You know, we need to have things that are in our lives that make us excited and happy and, you know, fulfilled Mm -hmm. in whatever that looks like. Yep. 100%. 
Um, what are some of the must-have financial tools for when you have a baby and you're raising a child? Must-have financial tools. Can you give me an example of maybe what you're thinking about when you ask that question? Oh, so like before you had mentioned like life, make sure you take out a life insurance policy. If you're thinking about it, like, is there any in, in short-term disability, you also also mentioned already, um, anything else that you would kind of encourage parents to really make sure that they have set up and in place? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I think, um, so I know often people will say, oh, I started a bank account for my kid. And I'm like, that's great. However, if your intention was that that money is not going to be used for 18, 25 years, we really don't want it to be sitting in a savings account. It's going to lose money to inflation over time. And so uh, one of the things to think about is, you know, just kind of getting things set up so that it's easy. And so don't just start with a savings account, start with some sort of investment account. And that could be a 529 educational savings plan. That could be a UTMA or a UGMA, which is a custodial account. Um, that is technically the child owns the money. You are just the custodian for it until they become the age of majority in your state. Or it could just be a taxable brokerage account in your name uh, that you've set aside for that child. And so just figuring out, okay, how do I want to invest for this child so that if I get gift money and I don't need that money to meet day-to-day expenses, what can I do with that money so that I can, you know, maybe it'll multiply four times or six times or something by the time that your child is ready to use it. And so that would be one thing to just spend a little bit of time figuring out how do I want to invest for my child? Where do I want that to be? And maybe you have two options. So I do both a 529 educational savings plan, as well as we do a taxable brokerage account in our names. And so um, things to know, you know, the 529 is great because you put money in, You may get some sort of state tax deduction or credit by putting that money in, which is great. Then the money grows tax-free. And so normally, you know, if I just put the money in a taxable brokerage account, I'm going to get every single year, I'm going to get a statement that says how much, you know, how much I need to be taxed on basically from that. But at a 529, you don't have any annual taxes while you're doing it on that money. And then in the end, if you use it on any of the qualified educational expenses, you get that money out tax and penalty-free as well. And so it's pretty cool. It can be used on a lot of different types of educational things. It's not just, you know, going to a university. It could be a community college, an apprenticeship, basically anywhere that someone can use federal student aid in the first place, they're probably going to be able to use the 529 and many of the expenses that are related to going to school, they could use that for. And so that would be a really great place. I mean, I kind of think that everyone should have some, like have a 529 set up because it's, it's a really great thing to get started. And also people might want to give you money if they think like, Hey, it's going to be for education. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, my mom is someone who really likes to give gifts, but I'm like, you know, what about contributing to the educational fund? (laughs) It's something that a lot of people want to support. And I've even seen like, there are studies showing that even just having, you know, $300 saved for school for education later helps even like lower income families, even, you know, first generation college students, all of that helps that happen. It helps people see that like, I can go to college. And of course, having a thousand dollars or having $20,000, whatever it is, like having something set aside for education is really cool. Um, and also you can, if you, especially if you have more than one child, I would have a 529 for each child. But if one of the kids doesn't ever use any of the money, you can just kind of reassign it to someone else. And if instead you want to reassign it to grandparent, grandchildren later, or even if you want to go back to school, like it could be for anyone. It's just, there's one beneficiary at a time. 
And so that's something that's important to know. If you're going to have, you know, four kids in school at the same time, you definitely want to have four, five, 29 plan, nine plans, not just one, because then you can only do the bending of the one child if you just had one. So yeah, so thinking about, you know, where do I want to put my money and to invest it? I have a blog post um, about this and it kind of talks a little bit about the positives and the negatives of that 529 account versus the UTMA or the UTMA versus a taxable brokerage account in your name. So I would definitely check that out and just kind of make a decision. It takes a little while, but if you just spend a little bit of time making a considered decision, it doesn't have to be perfect. Just make uh, make a decision as to what you want to do and what you want to invest in, which I have other blog posts about, you know, how do you decide what to invest in? And so making smart investing decisions and all of that. Um, so that would be one is just knowing to invest for your child, ideally, instead of saving, at least if you're talking about long-term and get mm-hmm. that started early on. For yourself, I would say some things to think about would be adding the term life insurance if you don't already have it and making sure that ideally it's enough. It's enough to get you to where you can self-insure however you want to be able to self-insure long-term disability insurance. That's another one that people I wasn't aware of, or I didn't know whether I needed it or why. The long-term disability insurance is one of the insurances that we're the most likely to need. I'm pretty sure the Social Security Administration says roughly 20% of people, like today's 23-year-olds or something, will become disabled before they turn 65. And so- Yeah. So it's one that's actually often used. Um, So long-term disability insurance, and that is basically insurance for your income. And so that's for anyone that's working. Of course, if you're going to be a stay-at-home parent, you're not going to be working. And so, you know, that's okay. Um, But for whoever is making income, if that income is providing for the family, then you definitely want long-term disability insurance on that person. So term life insurance, long-term disability insurance, estate planning, Um, that's a really big one. That's not something that I knew anything about. I can just tell you, I remember as a child knowing that my parents did not even have a will. And as a kid, that stressed me out. (laughs) Hmm. I remember that, like, I remember being like, well, what's going to happen to us? And like, they're not really being an answer. And so, um, doing some amount of estate planning at the very least, at least getting a will and, you know, figuring out who would take care of your children if something were to happen to you. Mm -hmm. Um, And then checking and updating beneficiaries is another good one. Um, Knowing that if you have access to FSAs or HSA accounts, so flexible spending accounts or health savings accounts, you might be able to add, you know, to, to open account or add more contributions to it or something. So kind of thinking about those kinds of things. Um, Also remembering that you're going to be eligible for new uh, tax credits. And so you might want to submit a new W-4 when you have a baby. Unless you just want to have, you know, one really big tax refund and that's, that's okay. But, you know, when you have a big tax refund, that also means that you didn't have that money to spend the entire year because you were giving it to the government to hold for you. So checking and updating beneficiaries, checking out your W-4, making sure you have a solid emergency fund, thinking about childcare and getting on any wait lists, life insurance. There was one more I was thinking about. Oh, Make sure you get your child on your health insurance. I think you only have, I think it's 31 days. I have a friend who failed to do this and it was a big fiasco and she didn't think she was going to be able to get insurance and she was going to have to go buy it herself and it was going to be terrible. So make sure that you have that set up to get your child on your health insurance. I don't know why they don't just add the kid automatically. Like they know you had a baby, right? but that's not how it works. That would be too easy, right? (laughs) I know. Let's just automate this. Makes mm-hmm. no sense. <laughs> and I think especially with long-term disability, which is one of the things I did learn about. And so I went out and got it. And I think I was 
29 maybe and pretty healthy. And it was still really hard for me to get it. Like they didn't like the fact that I was a nurse. They didn't like the fact that I had a history of breast cancer and like my family has a history of breast cancer. So, you know, I pay a lot of money a month for it. And if I am out of work because of my back or because I get breast cancer, I don't get coverage. So I couldn't, I can't imagine, you know, 10 years later trying to get that now, you know, it would just be more expensive and even harder to get. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, things like long-term disability and life insurance, those all are going to pay attention to, you know, what are your hobbies? What is your work like? How healthy are you? All of these things. And so the longer you wait with all of these, even worse, it's going to get, I mean, my partner is a welder and a machinist, like it's not a particularly safe job. (laughs) So we have, that's just kind of what we have to do. And that's the way it works. Mm. Uh, Luckily, I am a state employee. And so as a state employee, it's fairly inexpensive and easy to get. I don't have to go through any certain process. I just kind of add it at work, which is helpful. But yeah, I didn't even know that it was a thing. I didn't know if I should have it. I didn't know anything about it. Mm. So I eventually, so I I would care. I carried short-term disability when I was knew I was going to have babies because I had been told about that. And then um, now I have long-term and I eventually dropped the short-term once I decided I was done having babies. <laughs> I dropped the short-term disability insurance, but I carry long-term insurance instead. Great. And one question that I get a lot and I see a lot of ads, especially for like, do you remember the Gerber life insurance for baby ads on that they used to play on TV? Yeah. Should parents take out a life insurance policy on their baby? For me, as long as you have a solid emergency fund, if something were to happen, if you have, you know, would you have enough money to care, to do a burial and things like that? Would you need to take time off of work? And would you need to have something for that? I would say outside of those, you know, your child's not making income. So you're not relying on their income. So I don't think you need to have one unless, like I said, unless you can't cover those things or if you know, like, hey, I would need to take off a year, maybe it would make sense to have a year's worth of your income in some sort of insurance just so that you have that ability. But otherwise, I don't think that it's something that you need to have. Mm-hmm. If you're a family listening to this, it might sound overwhelming, right? Because we're giving like almost like lists of things to get. How would you recommend a family approach this in a way that's not too overwhelming and too scary? Because finances is a scary topic for a lot, a lot of people. And I know a lot of families that just, they want to do what they need to do, but they get overwhelmed and they kind of freeze and they can't make a decision. And so it, it just doesn't happen. So what would you recommend for that? I think probably the best option is just to kind of, yeah, go ahead and make a list of all the things that you think that you should be doing and then figure out like, what's really time sensitive. What do I need to do? For instance, getting the child on the health insurance within those 31 days, know what needs to happen within a certain time frame. know what decisions you need to make at certain times. So for instance, for me, I had to add the long-term disability insurance during open enrollment because I was adding it at my employer. And so knowing some of those, like, okay, what are the other things that I'm not in control of and what can I do for that? And then beyond that, you can just kind of look at your list and think like, okay, what are the most important things on here? And you might think, you know what? I just had a kid and I don't have any life insurance. I don't want something to happen and my family to only rely on maybe the small amount of social security, which I should mention in case you didn't know that there are benefits for if you pass while you have minor children, benefits that could go to your child as well as to your partner or someone who's caring for that child. And so 
that's an, a good thing to know. And that might be another thing to add to your list is just like log into the Social Security Administration website and figure out what my benefits are. So kind of break it down to like the smallest pieces. So let's say you decide, I really want to get some sort of investment plan set up and I want to get that done in the next three months. Okay, what are the decisions that I need to make to get to that point? And can I look into one thing each week? Or can I have an accountability partner, someone that is going through this with me or will talk to me about it? Uh, Maybe setting aside a half an hour each week to try to work through things or, you know, doing enough research to just figure out, okay, who do I need to work with to make my estate plan? Or Mm -hmm. what kind of education am I going to need? You know, for me, I'm someone who needs a lot of information before I can make a decision. I am like taking in all the information I can. And so probably for me, the first step would just be how can I find probably podcasts, ideally an audiobook where I could learn this information because I don't have a lot of time to just sit down with a book or anything and I don't have time to read blogs. And so I would usually be looking for how can I gather the information that I need? How can I find resources that are accessible to me in the time and way that I need them to be? And then you can kind of start to slowly process that information and move forward. Yeah. And I mean, I think some of those things I'll definitely have in the blog post that kind of a little bit of step-by-step like, okay, you want to start investing. What do you need to know now? It kind of walks you through like, what are the steps that you need to think about? What are the things that you need to understand so that you can move on to that next step? You know, if I'm sitting here saying that I think you should invest for your child's future and also for your own, by the way. Um, But if I'm sitting here saying that and you're just like investing, that's terrifying. I don't even know what that means. What does that look like? What do I invest in? You know, you're going to have to kind of break that down and learn that education over time. And so just figuring out like, is there someone that'll walk me through it? Is there a blog post that'll walk me through it? Do I need to consider, you know, taking some sort of course on this? Or can I just find a podcast that will educate me as much as I need to know about this? And you can literally just search and be like life insurance podcast or something and see if you can find a podcast that's, you know, 20 minutes and they just give you an introduction to what you need to know about this. Um, so I think just breaking it down, trying to write down the things and write down the things that you know you're going to need to be able to do those things and then take it one step at a time. Mm-hmm. Love that bite-sized pieces. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I mean, I was a graduate student. I had to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> if there's one thing that you would want new parents to know about finances when they're having a baby, what would that one thing be? I think the one thing would just be use this as an opportunity to reflect on yourself and who you are and what you care about and what you want to see happen use this opportunity. Don't just, I don't know, like, I don't even know how to say it, but just really take the opportunity to think about it. Take the opportunity to kind of drive your own life. Take the opportunity to figure out what really matters to you. You know, you only have one life to live. You've already made this decision, or maybe you're now making this decision to add children to that life. But what do you want that life to look like for you? What do you want it to look like for your kids? What do you need to do? And then I would say in the long run, investing is going to be a really good part of that solution. So, you know, figuring out whatever you need to figure out, but definitely Mm -hmm. investing for long-term goals, investing for the long run. And that's not something that I was doing before I had kids or not very much. And so, but it really opens up a world of possibilities when you think like, wow, it doesn't really take that much to be able to, you know, plan a trip to take my kids on this big trip to Europe in 10 years or whatever. Like if I start planning for it now, I can make a lot more happen than I ever realized. And now I'm thinking like, wow, this is really important to me. 
I want to make this happen. And then you'll find a way to make it happen. Letting your values drive your goals and yes, absolutely. Always, always. Yep. Well, this was great, Michelle. Where can people connect with you if they want to look at your courses or follow you on social media? Yeah, that's a great question. So my website is intentionalmoneylife.com. I am at Intentional Money Life also on Instagram and Facebook. I'm on Twitter at Intent Money Life and also on TikTok, as I mentioned. If you find me on any of those places, you'll probably be able to find me everywhere. Um, And you can always email me from my website or send me a message on Facebook or Instagram or something like that. And we'll put the links to your website and social media in the show notes too. So people can go and check out your courses and what else you have to offer. Thank Thank you you. so much. This is such an important topic. And I don't think it's talked about enough because it can be scary for some and maybe boring for others if they don't really think about it that much. But thank you so much, Michelle. I really appreciate you talking to us today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us this week on the Baby Pro Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, ShellyTaffIBCLC.com, where you can check out our online parenting community, The Baby Bistro. You can also follow us on social media at ShellyTaffIBCLC on Instagram. If you love the show, please leave a rating on iTunes so that we can continue to bring you amazing episodes. Thanks for listening and see you in two weeks.